Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. It comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. There's a team based in Toronto that at any given point in time employs some of the most skilled and experienced journalists in the country. Newsroom leaders from Canada's top broadcasters and newspapers. But they're just a part of the team. This team also has had a former member of parliament, high-powered lawyers, researchers, and pollsters, and top-level strategists from both ends of the political spectrum. The people on this team don't just have experience in news and PR and government and business. They also have connections and influence across the board and at the highest levels. And here's the most important part. This team has resources, seemingly limitless reserves of cash to do their work. This organization that I'm describing, it's not a newsroom. It's sort of the opposite of a newsroom. You see, their specialty is not reporting information to the public. What they do, big part of what they do anyhow, is work day and night to keep information from the public. Or if they can't do that, they've got a whole toolbox of strategies, ways that they can warp and manipulate the way that the public thinks about things or distract us or even just bury us in so much conflicting information that we all just get bored and move on. The organization that I'm talking about is called Navigator Limited, the crisis communications firm that has played a largely secretive 
but pivotal role in many of the major Canadian news stories you have heard over the last decade and beyond. Their client list is confidential, and their policy is to never confirm or deny when they're asked which people, companies, or institutions they work for. So they don't talk about their clients, and they don't talk about themselves. Their founder, Jamie Watt, would not sit down and give us an interview. Nothing much to say, Navigator once told the Globe and Mail. We're not very interesting, I'm afraid. But their refusal to publicly talk about the work that they do in the public sphere, well, that does make it challenging to report on them. In order to figure out who they are, how they came to be, and what they have done, well, you need to search under the cushions, collect the breadcrumbs, read a lot of documents, and keep very good files. Our news editor, Jonathan Goldsby, has done just that. And in a moment, he will join me for the Canada Land Guide to Navigator Limited. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Sam Halling, Joseph Kewin, Jillian Woolmer, Mark Mueller, Alex Rebeau, Devin Foyer, Ron Sanichin, and Isaac. I'm Isaac, a PhD student living in Toronto, and I support Canada Land because it is oh so easy to hyper-focus on grad school. Canada Land has been able to expand my tunnel vision by providing access to unique perspectives and underheard stories, helping me to realize there's a whole country for me to worry about on top of my day-to-day. Jonathan, when I think about Navigator, I immediately just think of Jamie Watt, Mm -hmm. the principal, I guess, the founder of the company. But I realize I don't actually know much about the guy. Who is Jamie Watt? Just to start, I want you to read this ad that ran in the Globe and Mail, sort of like a classified-like ad, but wasn't exactly classified, in December 1980. December 1980, Globe and Mail. Uh, J.S. Watt & Co. Clothing for Men. Last-minute shopping? Trust Jamie Watt and his men to have lots of fresh new ideas. Drop in at J.S. Watt & Co., formerly The Casual Affair, and you'll find the traditionals. Jaeger, Terry Williams, Johnson, Merritt, Dior, Cardin. Shirts and ties in silk, wool, stripes, patterns, plain, and novelty ties. Mm -hmm. For that really special guy, Jamie Watt has a velvet cord jacket at $175. That sounds pretty expensive for 1980. Socks in a can by Vagdan make fine stocking stuffers. What more can we say? 224 Lakeshore Road East, Old Oakville. So he was a men's clothier. Yeah. Before he was a crisis management strategist, a political operator, before he was an advertising executive, before anything else, he was a men's clothier in Oakville, Ontario. I mean, that's, I guess, an interesting bit of trivia about Jimmy Watt, but what is the relevance? Is there any connection, I guess, between his initial role as a men's clothier and his ultimate role as the the, the navigator guy? So after he was a men's clothier, he moved to London, Ontario, where he got involved in the advertising industry. He had a, a firm called uh, Cohen and Watt, and through that he built up, you know, client base, and he, be, he eventually got into politics, uh, successfully stick handling a lot of the advertising and messaging of the Ontario PC's successful 1995 election campaign. Hi, I'm Mike Harris. When you elected our government, we listened to you. We promised we'd lower your taxes to create good jobs, turn welfare into work, and protect our health care systems. The Common Sense Revolution is a plan of action to strengthen our province. 
better and brighter Ontario is waiting on the horizon. Let's go there together. Thank you. Okay, he got involved with the Conservative Party. Exactly. But some of the stuff that happened in Oakville in that sort of period while he was a clothier uh, eventually ended up catching up to him. What do you mean? Uh, Shortly after Mike Harris, the new premier, took office in 1995, he had run for office, I should say, on a sort of program of uh, populist austerity, sort of Thatchery, bringing into Ontario these, you know, the ideas of like, let's just uh, portray the poor as, as lazy and go after welfare. and go The common sense revolution. The common sense revolution, exactly. And so Jamie Watt's first big media debut in this context, in this realm, was a profile in the Toronto Star by Kelly Tuffhill. Uh, that came out in the middle, like a, but, but a month after Harris was elected, is kind of the dead of summer. She did a sort of a semi-puffy piece about uh, the group of seven who helped Mike make his mark. I'll just read you the, the lead of it. Uh, in ordinary circumstances, it would not be particularly noteworthy that Jamie Watt is gay. But Jamie Watt is not in ordinary circumstances. The 35-year-old advertising legend is one of the most important people in Ontario's new progressive conservative government, part of a very small, tight-knit band of advisors who helped Premier Mike Harris make his most important decisions. It seems a contradiction at first that a man active in gay causes is a top advisor to a right-wing premier who opposes expanding gay rights. What happened next wasn't actually even about that. It was about the fact of the article itself. It was about suddenly here he was uh, being written about in the Toronto Star. I believe the story ran on the front page. He was credited as sort of the architect of this common sense revolution, the person who came up with a lot of the – who helped distill a lot of the ideas into this messaging and branding that ultimately – brought the progressive conservatives to power. So it was a good positive profile of Jimmy Watt, but there was a bit of a factual discrepancy that was discovered after it was published. So the article said that he had moved to London, Ontario at the age of 20 and had gotten into advertising then, but it generally mentioned his years in Oakville as a men's clothier. And it turns out that during that time in the mid-80s, just before he moved to London, Ontario, he had pled guilty to five counts of fraud and one count of forgery relating to bank documents he'd fabricated in order to trick a bunch of Oakville residents, like other fellow business people, et cetera, to loaning him a total of $19,000. He had pled guilty to financial fraud? Yes, basically to forging documents to obtain uh, loans on false pretenses. Around the time when he was a men's clothier? Basically, he was trying to get these loans in order to keep his business afloat. Wow. And then goes into advertising, becomes a legend, according to Kelly Tuffhill. Yeah. In between, he was sentenced to 30 days in jail. He served like two-thirds of that. And oh, he, he went to jail? Night. Yeah. Well, because an for, overnight— f- for, for fraud? Yeah, for about two and a half, three weeks, and just overnight things. So, But yeah, he, he did go to jail for that brief period. And it's so interesting that getting good press as mm-hmm. being credited for being the architect of this political victory, mm-hmm. as a backlash to good press, it's like that's when somebody said, oh, that's not— exactly true. I know the the real truth about this guy. And then the dirt comes out. His political career was cut short basically because his past caught up with him and there was a, there was a media scandal. Yeah. And basically it was cut short. His career in, I guess, inside government was cut short. Not, certainly not his career around government, but his career inside government was cut short. Uh, He ended up, you know, getting more like contracts to work for the conservatives as soon as like a few months later. So he was still involved. But this was a big deal that he resigned because, well, the conservatives had you know, they sold the papers like, well, he, he didn't tell us about this. I mean, it's hard to say how much that was true. But yeah, he, he resigned and he wasn't really offering comment in those initial stories either. What I have always taken from this is that through this experience, he learned that it's better to get ahead of a crisis than let someone else define it. I get it. So this basically is like the superhero origin story of Navigator. Like he's the best guy to get you through a media crisis because he's been through it himself. 
I mean, navigators, a big part of what they do is trying to get ahead of stories. And there are a lot of different ways that can take place. But in this case, for example, you could imagine he could have basically gone out, admitted that this had happened, but that he, you know, become a different person or move past this or what have you, and put it in his own terms. It was that it wasn't something that people would come at as a surprise, you know, be surprising him with like, oh, we got you, but rather it'd be the one to volunteer the information, for example, and frame it in a way that is... I guess, has a more, in the context of a narrative that's more favorable. Once again, like that's a lot of sort of the backbone of how this company operates. I see what you mean. The fact that the truth about Jamie Watt was so contradictory to this, you know, uh, very positive uh, idea of him as this uh, sort of political superstar, if he had just integrated that into his story, if he had told his his bosses about it, and if he had told the Toronto Star, mm-hmm. oh, I have I have a checkered past, but I've learned so much yeah, from it. it's not hard to imagine that being like an inspiring story in a newspaper, right? Like you could easily imagine it being framed that way if someone were to volunteer and go like, hey, I'll tell you this story, but like this is, you know, this is how I want to feel about it. And you, you know, that's part of crisis management. How does he parlay this experience into this this company? How does this become Navigator? And what is Navigator? He founded Navigator in 2000. um, And at first, it was kind of just like a market research and polling firm. And they still do that. Like, if you go back to some of the earliest versions of their website, it's like around like, hey, we have this poll in a conservative leadership race that appears in the National Post. And it's kind of like a political polling and polling marketing firm type that. There's no shortage of those things out there. Yeah. There are dozens of strategy firms, research firms that we would never dedicate an episode of Canada Land towards. They're pretty banal. Navigator has a very singular and specific place. Like, how does that happen? So over the course of that decade, it kind of gradually started moving into other areas and what distinguishes them is that they don't really do any one thing. They're not just a strategy firm. They're not just a lobbying firm. They're not just a polling firm. They're not just a crisis management firm. And for a while, they themselves had a hard time exactly putting a finger on and sort of defining what is it that distinguishes us from all these other companies that maybe do one little bits and pieces of this, but not what we do. They particularly, their idea was that they are a company that will be hired by an individual, but usually a corporation, sometimes or sometimes a government or sometimes a party, and will, through various means and methods learned from the world of politics, go to bat for them, whether that means uh, getting good press and just advancing a campaign for around a particular policy or against a particular policy. And they'll apply these lessons learned in the world of politics to all manners of communications and advocacy. There's actually a case study in a, a book, a 2015 business book called Why Should I Choose You? Answering the Most Important Question in Business in Seven Words or Less by Ian Chimandy and Ken Aber. They run a company or consultancy called Blueprint Business Architect. Their whole thing is basically how do you distill the entire raison d'etre of your company, everything into seven words or less? And with Navigator, they hit it at six. Something that... Basically, yeah, it functions as a slogan, but also in a sort of a central principle around which the whole company can be oriented. So basically, they tried to figure out how do we define what we do that is special and distinct and unique, and that has an appropriate price attached to that. And so what's the six-word slogan they came up with? When you can't afford to lose. When you can't afford to lose. I mean, I knew that. It really is very good. It's an excellent slogan, although it's even it's more fun when you consider it as like a jingle. Navigator, when you can't afford to lose. It's a lot less intense that way. 
I don't think you'd be in such a jovial mood. Like this is like the, the pitch is you have built something. You are a major corporation or you are a celebrity. You have something to lose and you can't afford to lose it. This is for all the marbles. That's exactly it. It's partly about playing on emotion and it's about playing on a sense of threat. Yeah. And it tells you before you even pick up the phone, this is going to cost you an arm and a leg because you really have no other option. Yeah, in that respect, it's almost like a like a luxury brand, I suppose. Not a lot of com- businesses. I mean, they, you know, the t- or maybe the type of business where that sort of boutique nature or high class nature of it is built into its very brand, into its very marketing. This is how the consultants who help them come up with this core proposition explain the value of it to the company and how it binds it all together. Okay. What we could all agree was the common thread tying all of Navigator's clients together was that they felt as if they were under some sort of threat, but not necessarily in a crisis. In the client's minds, the consequences of these threats were far more grave than your garden variety marketing or sales dilemma. When we asked why the employees of this company were so good at what they do, we were told that they had all come from the world of politics, where the mindset and skill set were so clearly focused on winning. If you didn't win, you lost. There is no second place. There's first place and last place and nothing in between. So when you're under threat, do you want to hire people who have marketing and communication skills to help you? Or do you want a team of people who are absolutely tenacious when it comes to winning? That's interesting because it seems like you've got a bunch of people. And this was another thing that I think these kind of young Turks of Mike Harris, of Stephen Harper, Mm -hmm. they were known for being like, vicious, real politic, smart, strategic political thinkers. So here you you see taking the skill set of like politics is not business where like second place you could still make billions of dollars. It's win or lose. And you're trying to take down your opponent's reputation or preserve your own. Taking those types of combat strategies into a PR arena, you don't want to be thought of as like, we're not providing you market research. We're not. Although they, once again, like they, they, they do that. But they yeah, don't, exactly. But, but exactly. they're not branding themselves because, as you read, that's a dime a dozen. We're, exactly. we're here when you can't afford to lose and when the choices are winning or losing. So, who has needed these services? Who has availed themselves of Navigator? So, Navigator generally doesn't disclose or confirm who its clients are. They'll often decline to answer immediate questions, including some of the ones we sent for this episode, by explaining that they have contractual obligations to their clients that preclude them from talking about their client work. That said, through many reports over the years and various means, their identities and associations with various clients have emerged. Sometimes it's like if they're actually doing lobbying activity for a client and lobbying is a small part of what they do, that'll be in a lobbyist registry somewhere. Or for example, um, often, you know, their representatives will reach out to journalists on, you know, behalf of the client. And sometimes the journalists will report that, oh, we got a call from Navigator on this file. So right. over the years- Court filings. Sometimes court sometimes If it's a court public filing. expense that has to be disclosed. Yep. Sometimes official processes. So stuff comes out now and again. So the default is secrecy. We're not supposed to know because you wouldn't want somebody to know that you had to uh, retain Navigator if you could avoid it in, in many cases, I would imagine. Often, yes. And so when we've learned about them, that's the exception, not the rule. So you have to imagine there's a lot more than the ones we know about. Who are the ones we know about? This is a very incomplete list, but just some of the people and companies and organizations they've worked with in at least one respect have included Gian Gomeshi, Michelle Latimer, Chick-fil-A, We Charity, Soul Pepper Theater, Hockey Canada, The Globe and Mail, uh, Nordstar, which is the company that owns the Toronto Star, Brian Mulrooney, the Ottawa Police Service, Enbridge, PricewaterhouseCoopers, Food Banks of Canada, Clorox, Kraft Heinz, Pride Toronto, Labatt, Bell, Rogers, Microsoft. Prime ministers, the biggest companies in the world, the biggest celebrities in the country, people on both sides of the political spectrum. Yeah, generally speaking, yeah, liberal and conservative organizations. 
This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. It doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. All right, so these are very, very famous companies and people, former prime minister. They're famous, but Navigator's not supposed to be famous. Like, how did Navigator get famous? Let me ask you this, Jesse. When was the first time that you can recall hearing about Navigator? Michael Bryant. Yeah, myself as well. And I think that really was kind of their big debut in this other larger sphere. I guess maybe because their work there was so effective, you had to wonder who the hell pulled this off. For those listeners who are outside of Ontario and or don't remember, Michael Bryant was basically he was a hotshot lawyer who was elected to the Ontario legislature as a liberal member of provincial parliament when he was in his early 30s. And then when the liberals took power in 2003, he became the province's attorney general at the age of 37. Eventually, you know, he shuffled different minister positions. He resigned from the legislature in the spring of 2009 to head up a, a new city of Toronto agency. But then just before the end of the, the summer in 2009, uh, while out driving with his wife, he killed the cyclist, uh, a courier named Darcy Allen Shepard. Bryant was charged with criminal negligence and dangerous driving causing death. And there was a whole altercation leading up to that fatal impact. And there were a lot of witnesses and things were not looking good for Bryant. I remember that he was known as, a, as an incredibly talented rising star, but he was also known as a hothead. And here he is in like a convertible sports car. And there was no question that th th this altercation with Darcy Allen Shepard and eyewitness accounts of the car speeding off and slamming Darcy Allen Shepard to his death on the side of Bloor Street, it was not looking good. Yeah, it was not looking good. And But within a couple of days, the media attention, the narrative 
began to shift a bit. It began to focus more questions, like questions to police began to focus more on Shepard, the, the man who was killed, and all the reasons that he might have actually been the one at fault, with reporters peppering police with questions about, like, maybe did Darcy Allen Shepard try to grab Michael Bryant's steering wheel? Did he try to put Michael Bryant in a headlock? And the Star reported at the time that, you know, a police spokesperson found himself wondering where all that stuff was coming from. Yeah. You know, I remember the indelible image that ran all over the place of Darcy Allen Shepard in an altercation with a driver of a car in that like that just seems like a nightmare as a motorist, right, to have this uh, angry, you know, kind of punk rock looking cyclist mm-hmm. in the driver's side window threatening you. Of course, this was a completely different altercation, but I think that in the public imagination, this brought up a lot of questions, even if the eyewitness accounts had nothing like that. And what struck me about the outcome, you know, I've often thought of Navigator as, you know, you've got your lawyer for court Mm -hmm. and then who represents you in the court of public opinion? And that's Navigator. And, you know, these days optics being very important, but, you know, we still think of the courts as having a primacy, like your very freedom is is at risk and and, and the court should be sort of in a separate protected place from this, this court of public opinion. But it seemed to me that Navigator was so successful in changing that narrative that it actually changed the court outcome because Marie Hanen his lawyer and lawyers, I should generally speaking, lawyers often work in close conjunction in coordination right, with crisis team. management firms, which also would put crisis management firms sometimes under solicitor client privilege. It's, it, it's, it's not that ultimately a court determined that Michael Bryant at trial was determined to not be guilty of mm-hmm. manslaughter or whatever he might have been charged with. But after the public image of Darcy Allen Shepard had been so damaged, she was able to convince the Crown that it wasn't even worth putting him on trial. It's like the victory in the court of public opinion was so triumphant that it superseded the need for there to be a court process. This guy, Although, we're, not, we're uh, not even going to put him on trial because there's no reasonable chance of conviction. It's not uncommon in and of itself, I should say, to have for it to happen that additional facts come out in an investigation that causes police to, or prosecutors, actually, usually, to doubt that there is a reasonable prospect of conviction in a given situation. And so this sort of created the legend from that initial shift and rough shift in public opinion, even before, like just in the immediate, in the days after this incident, sort of created the legend of Navigator. I, mean, I specifically remember the, this Linda Diebel article in The Star where she wrote that, you know, it's a reasonable bet that you too, Toronto Star readers, have an opinion about this situation, but is it, you might ask, your own? Definitely not, says a veteran Toronto criminal lawyer, loath to have his name published. Look, the headline on this story should be Navigator Changing Your Perceptions Without You Even Knowing It. And I've been fascinated with them ever since. Navigator changes the public perception. Changing your perceptions without you even knowing it. That's chilling. It is. It's amazing. That's why I've been so fascinated with them. For his part, Watt later told the magazine that was then called the Ryerson Review of Journalism that he saw Navigator's role in the Michael Bryant case as countering misinformation and a pack mentality setting in amongst reporters. Quote, things were being reported that were not true, that Bryant left the scene of the accident, that he was drunk, that he would be in court on October 19th when it was just an initial appearance by his lawyer. If we'd let them go, they would have set like cement. We did what we needed to do to change the dimensions of the story, and then we stopped talking. Yeah, that's when you and I became aware of Navigator, but for other people, I think Many probably became aware of them through Gian Gomeshi. 
The story of what really led to the firing of a popular CBC radio host, Gian Gomeshi, keeps developing. Gomeshi's high-profile Toronto PR firm explaining today why they dropped him. Sources say Gomeshi lied to his crisis management team, Navigator, about how many women could potentially come forward. In his infamous Facebook rant, he wrote it on his own, with no input from his advisors. Until finally, late yesterday, Navigator decided its moral code precluded the company from continuing to represent Gameshi. I can actually take people through this. I remember it pretty well. First, it came through an unnamed source that Navigator had been advising Jean Gameshi in handling his, uh, his scandal of being exposed and accused of being a sex predator, but that they had fired their own client. And that came to the press uh, anonymously, and that was followed up from a, a rare official statement from Navigator uh, saying that they had parted uh, company and they no, they no longer represented uh, Gian Gameshi. And the details that were reported were that it is common practice in crisis communications that whatever you did, you need to tell your crisis communication firm. It's rare, I think, for them to say, what you have done, sir, is so horrible that we can't represent you. That doesn't break the rules. What breaks the rules is we can only defend you if we know what you did. And Gameshi reportedly, uh, and the Toronto Star reported this, Kevin Donovan with uh, Jacques Gallant, they had been told by their source that Gameshi had assured Navigator that the accusation was coming from one bitter, disgruntled ex and a freelance journalist uh, who didn't like him, and that, that was me. What Navigator reportedly did not know was that there were many, many, many other women. And reportedly, when they found out that they were dealing with many more accusers than Gomeshi had told them, they let him go as a client. Yeah, but Gene Gomeshi himself later wrote in the New York Review of Books uh, when he tried to have this you know, not successful reintroduction to the public sphere. In an essay, he wrote that the professional team that I had hired as experts to guide me through the explosion bolted too, but not before they had cheered on some ill-advised social media postings and threatened lawsuits. See, that's interesting that they cheered on his ill-advised social media because that is classic Navigator playbook, as you were describing earlier, get ahead of the story, tell your version of exactly. it. Exactly. So that was a fatal error in this case. The Toronto Star had dropped the story before that, but once Gameshi exposed himself and made this a public matter, that's when the Star got back on the phone with me and said, come back immediately, we want the story back. And I can see the merit to Navigator's strategy, but maybe the issue there is if they had known that there was so much more that he was hiding, they would have said, do not post that. All those initial steps bear the Navigator hallmarks of getting a statement out that frames it in your terms. In that case, it was about supposedly consensual BDSM relationships, as well as launching a lawsuit, a wrongful dismissal suit against the CBC, which was very short-lived. That was a PR lawsuit. Yes, because it was very clear to legal observers. Basically, Gian Gomeshi was a unionized employee, and generally unionized employees can't sue for wrongful dismissal. There's a whole grievance and arbitration process. It was not a credible lawsuit. It was to show I'm fighting back. Yes. And it worked, uh, it worked uh, until it didn't. It worked in terms of getting everyone from Elizabeth May, Judy Rebick, uh, you know, he had feminists and progressives coming to his aid. But then when it became clear that there were, uh, you know, uh, by the time I was done reporting with a star, there were eight accusers and then that number climbed above 20 and, and then everybody ran for cover. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I take AG1 by Athletic Greens literally every day. Wake up in the morning, scoop out a scoop of this green powder, put it in this very attractive like canister, mix it with water, give it a shake, drink it, move on to coffee. 
I'm hydrating, yes, but really what I'm getting is better gut health, boosted energy, immune system support. I don't know about this stuff. What I do know is that like vitamins, minerals, prebiotics, probiotics, gut health, these are proven, known, settled science. It's just a way to be healthy. Get it all in one go with AG1. If you are looking for a simpler and cost-effective supplement routine, Athletic Greens has a great deal. They're giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com slash CanadaLand. That is athleticgreens.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. Jonathan, clearly I could talk about the Gameshi case at some length, but let's not do that uh, any further. That was... uh, almost a decade ago that people learned about Navigator through that case. What has become of Navigator since? Because it doesn't seem like they've ever disappeared. If anything, they just seem to be a more powerful or more more present presence than ever. If we're talking about the court of public opinion, which is where Navigator generally fights, it is much louder, faster, and all enveloping than it has ever been thanks to social media. And I mean, I don't like the term cancel culture, but if you're talking about what does it mean to, for public opinion to turn on someone or something fairly abruptly, they have managed to, you know, from the very early days of social media, really develop a practice around trying to both basically trying to insert themselves in that and trying to harness it and trying trying to harness it, trying to deflect it and trying to get inside. They, there are lots of Jamie Watt speeches from around 2011, so like early-ish Twitter days where he talks about the importance of rapid response. And conversely, from a campaigns and strategy perspective, he talks about activating the edge, about how you can use social media to mobilize your most loyal and ardent supporters to convey your message for you. I think I see exactly what you mean. I mean, what's happened in the time since Gameshi? Me Too has happened after Gameshi. Whether we like the term or not, the fact that you can go from having a golden brand to being dragged by millions, canceled as it were, That can happen in hours. If you are somebody with something to lose, if you are elite, if you are part of the establishment, if you have a big company or a big brand, these are the years where I I, like, how do I build a moat around this? Whether you're in crisis or not, that must be something that powerful people live in fear of like never before. This is probably a really good era to be in crisis communications. And I guess that uh, Michael Bryant and John Gameshi established Navigator as the go-to crisis communications firm. So this has just been like the solid years for Navigator. So Navigator aims itself, I think it aims itself to have people with something to lose, whether that's power, status, reputation, money. And losing those things, largely thanks to the court of public opinion, has never been easier or faster. And so, yeah, to be able to brand yourselves essentially as the defenders of the things that you already have that you do not want to lose and that you're willing to pay quite a bit of money to protect, that's that's a good been a good business strategy. Jonathan, knowing that they worked with Gameshi, knowing that they worked for Bryant before I covered that story, but, uh, you know, having that knowledge and then knowing that there is that connection with We Charity, I've often wondered when sending questions to powerful people, when conducting investigations, when doing journalism, am I actually dealing with Navigator here? Sometimes things can change really, really quickly. Like you get used to the patterns of response that somebody ignores your questions mm-hmm. for a certain amount of time or they or they answer quite tersely. And then all of a sudden you get really expansive responses from them and the tone of the communications shift. And I'm like, wait, did they just bring in Navigator? 
I often find myself wondering if they are a player in these stories. And that might sound, I don't know, paranoid or something or fixated on them. But they do pop up in so many major news stories. Yeah, I mean, just in the past year and a half or so, they've come into the news, into big national news on a few occasions, working for Hockey Canada, trying to help them get past their scandals with limited success. That's an interesting one because I I recognize the playbook there when an institution is coming under fire and they say, we got this. We're going to strike our own committee to investigate ourselves. Uh, Well, strike a committee to advise or to help guide a path forward. You're telling the public that we're taking this scandal seriously, but you're also taking control of your own scandal. Like you're, you're, because who gets to determine what that board is and what its scope is and who's on it? Yeah. So there was like a a story reported by CBC and others in August of 2022 about how Marnie McBean, who's a Canadian Olympian, she said basically she was approached by Navigator to help, you know, sit on one of these things. Navigator asked her to sit on one of these boards for Hockey Canada. A Canadian Olympic champion says she was asked to sit on a Hockey Canada oversight committee, but the offer was withdrawn after she lobbied for leadership change. She said she was approached by the high-profile PR firm Navigator and was asked to be a member of a special committee of independent experts tasked with monitoring and providing guidance on Hockey Canada's previously announced plan. Let's talk about that tactic for just one second because it's such such an effective and interesting one. Rather than the typical response that, you know, you might take when you feel like you're being unfairly scared Scandalized, say this isn't really a scandal, or we don't we don't take this seriously, or this never happened. You're taking all that energy and you're accepting it and absorbing it. You're saying yes, yes. There's something really important here, and no one is more concerned than we are, and we are going to get to the bottom of it, and we are striking this independent committee. And really, what you're saying is like we're going to do such a good job of this. You don't, you don't have to keep looking at us, but you do get to control. And, and look what happened there. A navigator reaches out to somebody, asks her to be on the committee. And she tries to engage with it in, in a legitimate way and say, the leadership of this committee needs to change. The leadership of this, com- this organization needs to change. She says, as a member of this committee, I advise that the leadership of Hockey Canada needs to change. And they say, well, sorry, that's not the advice we were looking for. And she's shown the door. I mean, another considerable one uh, was the convoy occupation. So this was obviously the big convoy occupation of Ottawa in February 2022, where they advised the Ottawa Police Service, which was reported at the time, but a lot of the details of the extent of their involvement came out earlier this past year in the report of the Public Order Emergency Commission that sort of questioned, well, one, whether navigators should have been given, had so much influence, but more to the point, whether there was at least a perception that the uh, Ottawa police chief at the time, Peter Slowly, may have placed an undue emphasis on how things and how his own reputation appeared as opposed to how to actually manage the situation in the best interests of what would have to happen. Uh, good morning, uh, Commissioner. Good morning, Mr. Slowly. You recognize the importance of communicating and messaging, correct? That's an important obligation that you have as a chief, and it's important uh, that you communicate appropriately uh, both in the service and externally to the service, correct? Yes, sir. And in that regard, you retained a company called Navigator to provide strategic communications and issues management advice related to the Freedom Convoy from January 30th. They were procured to support the Ottawa Police Service and the Ottawa Police Services Board, yes, sir. We know they provided services to you. They even prepared a report for you on what your reputation was. They prepared general reports 
that covered a range of topics, including general trust of the Ottawa Police Service. And yes, they broke it down in some cases to assess trust in the, in the, in the chief of police. And there was a specific report, actually, uh, about your reputation. OPS spent $185,000 on Navigator providing communication advice for the period of January 30th to February 15th. That's one worth talking about for a second because there were like two things about that that were so weird. The whole country was watching the Ottawa police to see like what's going on there? How are you letting this go on? What are you going to do about this? And then we find out that they're like hiring a PR firm to navigate their public image. Yeah. That seemed like, like, that's not what we want you to be thinking about right now. But then the other implication that was concerning was not just that you're worried about your brand, but that you're letting the advice. That you're letting your concern about your brand dictate the action that you take. That Navigator is actually maybe even like influencing or like controlling what course of action the police. I don't think they're controlling, but here, let me read you what Justice Rouleau wrote in his report uh, as one of the issues. He called decision-making and communication unduly influenced by extraneous considerations. Undue influence. The Ottawa Police Service and the Ottawa Police Service Board were entitled to utilize crisis management communications experts or strategists to assist them with messaging. However, several meetings involving the OPS chiefs, Peter Slowly, and external communications advisors from Navigator Limited and or Advanced Symbolics, which is another company, appear to have morphed into operational discussions that considered which decisions would best address reputational concerns about the OPS and Chief Slowly. Chief Slowly should have been far more careful to avoid even the perception of operational or tactical decisions tied to reputational concerns. Yeah, it's one thing to bring in PR people for like, okay, we now know what we're going to do. How are we going to convey it to the public? But Navigator seems to have had a seat at the table when actually deciding on operational decisions. Yeah, there's another moment in, let me pull up the other volume. One of the deputy chiefs testified that Chief Slowly involved Navigator in operational discussions during the conference, including discussions in which Navigator advocated for more active enforcement measures. In one instance, Navigator Limited's principal entered the deputy chief's office uninvited and told him that the OPS should take more active enforcement measures at the National War Memorial. One of the higher-ups at Navigator, who at this point in the relationship with Peter Slowly feels comfortable walking into his office uninvited. Or into the deputy chief's office even. And saying, here's how we should handle the Freedom Convoy protests. We need to take more action right now. Or yeah, here's what you need to do to, you should be more active in getting protesters away from the war memorial. So who's calling the shots is a legitimate question to ask in that instance. No, it's not even so much who's calling the shots is why are they giving suggestions about what shots to be called? So that's like a tail that wags the dog kind of a thing when the optics actually determine the course of action. Uh, and there's one more uh, story where they played a, a significant reported role this past spring, and that was the story of Chinese foreign interference. Breaking news, Special Rapporteur David Johnston has submitted his resignation to the Prime Minister for his role in leading the hearings and inquiry and review of public interference in Canadian elections. The latest controversy was unfolding this week with The Navigator, right. a crisis management firm that uh, he had hired for a period of time. And then the Global Mail came up with a story saying that Navigator had also at one time had the client of Handong, an right. independent MP, who this report looked into. Now that one, I think, hit in the same way of like, you are supposed to be this unimpeachable. The whole point of Trudeau appointing a special rapporteur is that we have... We're going to depoliticize this question. We're going to hand this off to somebody with an unimpeachable reputation who's going to get to the bottom of this and take this away from this vulgar uh, partisan fight and, and care about what happened, not the optics of what happened. And then you find out that the guy has enlisted Navigator to stick handle, I guess, his public image 
as he carries out his function as a special rapporteur. But that wasn't the end of it. And this is a case where Navigator's involvement actually ended up changing the... That's how it appears. So David Johnson's office, the special rapporteur, had hired Navigator to provide communications advice and support around the production of their report and their their work. And so the Globe got a tip. The Navigator had also been doing work for Handong earlier in the year. Handong being the current independent former liberal MP who was one of the subjects of... Uh, David Johnson's investigations in terms of like trying to figure out whether certain allegations about him. Jonathan, let me hit pause on that for a second because it is it is so absurd to think that David Johnson has the job of finding out whether or not Handong actually was the target of foreign interference, whether or not MP Handong actually did the bidding of Beijing, whether or not these media reports about Handong are accurate or not. That's David Johnson's job. And he hires Navigator to handle his public image and his appearance of neutrality as an honest broker. Han Dong is facing his own crisis that he's the target of these accusations, and he too hires Navigator. And this brought up something that we've talked about in the newsroom, which is, you know, when you call up a lawyer, the first thing they do when you ask a lawyer for advice is they say, I have to run a conflict check. I can't represent you if I'm representing somebody else, another interested party in this conflict, either the person who you're going against. And sometimes they'll put up firewalls so that uh, the same firm can handle those. But that's the first question that they ask. And there's, of course, a law society that governs these things. What regulations govern an industry like crisis communications? What the special rapporteur's office told the Globe and Mail was that the first time he'd heard of any relationship between Navigator and Handong was when he received the Globe and Mail's questions, and that under the circumstances, he decided it would be best to end Navigator's engagement with that, their team. So neither Navigator nor Handong confirmed anything for the Globe, but the special rapporteur's office told the Globe that Navigator has confirmed that it was never working for Handong and the independent special rapporteur at the same time. At the same time. But the information you get from your first file, conceivably, uh, at least that's known to Navigator when they embark I, upon I, their second file. Conceivably. Jonathan, how long after that was it that David Johnson stepped down as special rapporteur? So that happened on Thursday, June 8th. On Friday, June 9th, David Johnson did what he had previously said he would not do and stepped down. He resigned. I will say that Navigator has told me that we have a conflict management process in place to ensure our legal and ethical obligations are adhered to and the trust clients put in Navigator is always respected. So they're saying, trust us, we have internal policies about this. They're saying they do have a conflict management process. It's pretty wild to think that the sensitive information that Handong, especially if Navigator says, you need to tell us everything you did if we're going to help you here. So they know everything that Handong didn't do or did do if, if he was being a good client. And then the same with David Johnson. The same company is trying to advise both of these people through their respective uh, trials and tribulations. And we have to trust them that they're not going to use information from one file to help their case on the other file because we trust Navigator. The language says in the site they, they aspire to the highest professional standards and uh, they value integrity. We pride ourselves in our character. Our clients and employees know to expect truth and fairness at every turn. Jonathan, this may sound juvenile, but I've often thought of Navigator as being like Joker to our Batman in, in journalism or something like that. Like we are both doing work about public information, but our job is to find the truth and tell it. And their job is often to keep the truth from the public or to... Or to, to assist their clients to move past an, a situation where the truth, if presented in a certain way, might not be, uh, might, not have, might not be good for them. 
Well, there's a couple things that they do, one of which is like, well, forget what the media is saying about you. Let's get a better story out there. Let's get a more favorable story out there. But there is a part of what they do that is about directly getting in our way. Right. Yeah, it is about I mean, shaping a narrative like there's a journalist out there who's trying to expose you for doing X. We need to stop that narrative. We have a, a toolkit of, of tactics and strategies. And I often feel like we are pitted against them or they pit themselves against us in our desire yeah, to get I the mean, truth out there. Maybe. Potentially. It, I mean, it, it can happen. I mean, you know, as Kevin Don, Don Rivera, their first thing is like convince the journalist something is not a story. And the second thing is try to get ahead of it. And so there are a lot of ways that you can try to kill a story. Most of the, I mean, there are a lot of ways through simple persuasion. It's like, hey, look, this thing is not as weird or as bad or whatever as you think. Um, and there are ways that you can get, you can, you know, kill a story just by planting another story that's the same subject that's maybe slightly more favorable and framing in another place. And it may or may not kill it, but it'll set the tone, get ahead of it, set the tone first, right? Like, I, it's not that complicated. We're trying to give birth to stories and they try to kill stories, right? Uh, they try to shape stories. I mean, we serve very different interests. I mean, ideally, I know that we don't always function in, in the ideal sense, but ideally journalists serve the public. Who does Navigator serve? The, the idea is to represent and to serve people who have or believe they have a lot of things to lose, as well as the means to pay quite a bit to ensure that they don't do not lose those things. I have always thought of them as a creature of the elite, of the establishment yeah. in Canada, and, and so tight with the elite and the establishment in Canada. So Jamie Watt just published a book last month called what I Wish I Said, Confessions of a Columnist, which uh, is a compilation of his weekly Toronto Star columns over the previous, like, he'd been, he's been a star columnist on a weekly basis since, like, fall 2016. This is, like, a 50 of those columns as well as his own assessments of and rebuttals to them in retrospect. The book has blurbs, as lots of books do. This opens with page after page of blurbs, and among those blurbing are a former prime minister, Brian Mulroney, Two former national news anchors, Peter Mansbridge and Lisa Laflamme, the publisher of the Toronto Star, Jordan Batov, the publisher of the Globe and Mail, Philip Crawley, six former premiers of Ontario spanning three political parties, so everyone from David Peterson up through Kathleen Wynne, a former BC premier, a former Quebec premier, two former Alberta premiers, assorted, you know, Rick Mercers, and a, a guy named Bob Dylan, but not, not that Bob Dylan. Jonathan, when I saw that list of big Canadian names blurbing his book, I thought, what does this actually mean? What is he trying to convey here? Because like, no one's going to buy your book because Brian Mulroney gave you a blurb. But it is really weird to see that you've got politicians on the left and the right blurbing your book, that you've got newspaper publishers from all, from like, you know, rival newspapers, mm -hmm. that everybody, you know, Mansbridge and everybody in the media, everybody in the power elite of Canada is sort of like what the message to me was, I am a very big fucking deal. I am very well connected. Yeah, and the book's forward is by Andre Pratt, who is a former longtime columnist and editorial writer at uh, La Presse and was a former senator. And the book's uh, afterward is, a, is by Michael Cook, who's a longtime former editor-in-chief of the Toronto Star and also now works at Navigator. Michael Cook, who I worked with, uh, who I worked under when he was the editor-in-chief of the Toronto Star, locking horns with Navigator over the Gameshi case. What does he do? He goes to work for Navigator after he's done with the Toronto Star. This impresses upon me just navigator as a vector of power. And I've never understood why we in journalism who have to get through navigator to get the truth out are so welcoming. And, and, and this is a book collecting his Toronto star essays, Jonathan, as a publisher of news content in Canada, I'm often inviting people 
onto our platform to co-host shortcuts or whatever mm-hmm. else. I'll just speak personally. I don't know what the star is thinking, but in a million years, I would not invite a spin doctor for the elite to come and opine on the topics of the day. I would be terrified. I don't know who has paid them. In fact, they're not allowed to tell me who has paid them. That's their code of ethics is that they have clients in the public eye, people who I'm trying to report on as a journalist, and their job is to spin narrative for those people. That's the last person that I would let onto my platform. I mean, how does the Toronto Star know when Jamie Watt over the years is opining on the politics of the day, who has paid Jamie Watt? I mean, I would worry that the PR spin doctor who I'm letting onto Canada land is selling their access to my audience to their clients. I mean, in practice, I doubt it's that simple. It's more it's more the prominence of ha- being a Toronto Star columnist, I think. And he certainly seems genuinely proud of that. What I can say is he started after he was invited by, what he wrote in his book is that after he was invited by John Hondrick, who was the longtime chairman of Toronto Star What is Corp. the story there? So John Hondrick asked him to be a columnist at the Toronto That's Star? That's what he writes. It's plausible. Basically, they, had a, they were starting up a new politics page at the time. They had a, wanted a liberal NDP and conservative voice. He uh, maybe was just the first conservative who came to John Hondrick's mind. But he doesn't work for uh, the conservative party. He works for whoever will pay him. Well, politically, he he is a prominent conservative, a capital C conservative, and works for conser- does work for conservative parties. Uh, the company work is much broader, and so the column seems to have basically sort of stayed going, outlived the politics page. He's a regular weekly or bi-weekly columnist with a headshot. And it says, of course, you know, he's a conservative strategist and executive chairman of Navigator Limited. When you work for Hockey Canada or you work for Jean Gomez, you're not being a conservative strategist. I mean, does the Toronto Star know who he works for? Have we asked them that? We got into some insight in a couple months ago when he wrote a story about transportation policy in Toronto in the midst of this mayoral by-election. But the column itself didn't disclose that he'd been an advisor for one of the candidates from there, a councillor named Brad Bradford. Well, that sounds exactly like what I'm talking about. Well, I mean, in this case, we got some insight into what happened from the public editor of the Toronto Star, Donovan Vincent, who wrote a couple weeks later that, well, actually, in this case, someone in Jamie Watt's staff had told the Star that, oh, that he's working for, doing for Bradford. Maybe a line disclaimer should be added at the end. But it was the editor who made the call that, because the column wasn't name-checking mayoral candidates or advocating for or against anyone, that it wasn't necessary. But the editor, you know, recognizes now that that was, that was the wrong call. There's a lot of questions about how they, how the star makes this work. Because as you noted, you know, this company has a lot of clients. We don't know who most of those are. But as one example, when I was, you know, was working on my email to the star for comment just a few hours ago, I just thought like, oh, I'm going to give an example of this. So I just pulled up like what are his recent columns it touches on electric vehicle battery subsidies and the mining resources let's just see what we do know about navigator and so the most reliable way to find out who they're working for is go to the lobbyist registries which once again small portion of their business but there are stuff there and okay oh here's a company called northern graphite that they're lobbying both the ontario and federal governments for that specifically makes components for electric vehicle batteries is that a conflict i mean like it, like it's more of a question of like is that something the star ought to have known or considered, and how does that work? So, yeah, Bruce Campion-Smith, the Toronto Star's editorial page editor, just got back to me just to tell me that, you know, we expect all of our columnists to identify any potential conflicts of interests in the topics they choose to write on. But I guess it's one of those things that just points to stuff we talk about all the time on all of our various shows here about how Canada is this place that is big geographically, but not that big socially or politically, right? It really is run by this 
relatively small, relatively tightly knit group of people and institutions and corporations that all kind of know and maybe even respect each other. And within those elite circles, within that sphere, Navigator has very much established itself as the place you turn to when you can't afford to lose any of that. That is your Canada Land episode. If you value this podcast, support it. We need you to do that. We rely on listeners like you to pay for our journalism. I think we're giving you stuff you're not going to find elsewhere. I think it's worth it. As a supporter, we're going to give you stuff, more stuff, premium access to all of our shows, no ads. You'll get early releases. You'll get bonus content that other people don't hear. You'll get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on our merch. We want to give you tickets and invites to our live and virtual events. We want you to come out. We want to meet you. More than anything, you will become a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis. You'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Come join us now. Click on the link in your show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. You can email me. My email address is jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything you send. I do. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website, come have a visit, sign up for our newsletter. We're at canadaland.com. This episode was reported by our news editor, Jonathan Goldsby. Our senior producer is Bruce Thorson. Additional production and editing from Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Annette Ajofo. Our editor-in-chief is Karen Pugliese. I am your host, Jesse Brown. Our theme music is by so-called syndications handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. You can listen to Canada Land ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. <laughs>